Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. My name is Jamila Rizvi and I'm joined today by my co-host Astrid Edwards as ever. And today we get to chat to Annika Smithhurst. Annika is the state political editor at The Age newspaper in Melbourne. She is a double Walkley Award winner and she has two Melbourne Quill Awards for her political reporting. Her new book is The Accidental Prime Minister, the first definitive biography of Australia's 30th Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. Today, Astrid and I get the opportunity to sit down with Annika and ask her about the daggy dad the daggy dad who stopped the boats, who has that deft rebuttal of media inquiries, who is known for his faith and his love of the Cronulla Sharks, and also his sound bites, his social media posts, and his response to COVID-19. Annika Smithhurst, welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman and congratulations on your new book, The Accidental Prime Minister. Can you start by just telling us a little bit about your first impressions of Scott Morrison going into writing this book and maybe how they changed over the course of it? I obviously had covered his prime ministership as a member of the Canberra Press Gallery and one thing you try and do as a journalist is not have emotional opinions about these people. Obviously, we all vote. I sort of describe it as like a football commentator who might grow up going for Collingwood but then has to commentate every game and you still have to give people, you know, a pat on the back when they do well. And it's quite, as you know, Jam, once you're in Canberra, you see things in a less binary fashion. You see good and bad in a lot of different people and it starts to challenge some of your preconceptions, I guess, of people. I recall on my first day in Canberra actually being sent to the press club and Scott Morrison was social services minister and he did a speech and he'd just come out of the portfolio of where he was immigration minister and he was quite well known for not saying a whole lot there but being pretty stoic on that policy. So I think why I ended up doing this book and it was because I actually quit my job in the press gallery and I was contacted by the wonderful Louise Adler who told me that I'd be bored getting manicures after a few days and that I needed a project and she was right. But one of the things about him is he's not a known known. Like before Malcolm Turnbull became prime minister, he was kind of around a lot. People knew a lot about the Turnbulls. His wife was mayor. He was involved in the Republic debate. Tony Abbott had been around for a long time too, less so with Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard. But we sort of knew these people previously. And Scott Morrison really hadn't been around that long and had become prime minister. He's relatively young. And I just thought, I think my publisher is right. There is a gap in the market here about just people not knowing who this guy is that's running the country. And my perception, I tried to go in open-minded. I I sort of, as I said at the start, I don't think you should have strong feelings. I think if you do have strong feelings about certain politicians, you should perhaps take a step away from the press gallery or reporting on that area for a while because you don't report accurately and fairly. There are things about him, I guess, I admire the fact he became Prime Minister and he's 
most people would say his work ethic, I think even Labor MPs would say his work ethic is second to none and we do all want politicians who work hard for us. He's ruthless. A lot of politicians are. He is particularly ruthless and it's almost a play on words that he's accidental Prime Minister. He accidentally became Prime Minister that week. There was nothing accidental about his sort of path to getting there. There's always an assumption that everybody that goes to Canberra wants to be Prime Minister one day and few make it, but he was not going to let anybody stand in his way. And what I uncovered was throughout his life, he's been underestimated and has just constantly had this drive and this ambition, which he's hidden pretty well. So I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. In some contexts, drive and ambition is an amazing thing. It depends what happens along the way, I guess. And that's all in the story. Clearly, Australians want to know about our current prime minister. But I guess, what is the purpose of a political biography whilst that person is still in office? So there is so much still happening. And so this can't be the definitive account of his time in office because he's still there. So what was your goal? In this amazing bookshelf behind me, there is about a million biographies of Napoleon because my husband's obsessed with Napoleon. And I was so jealous of there being an endpoint to these things. I was meant to hand it in in January. I didn't because I was busy. <laughs> Basically, I was just a classic writer and missed that deadline. But of course, the story kept developing. You know, if I had have cut it off in January, his handling of the pandemic until that point was seen pretty much as a success, especially globally. Uh, we'd had relatively low case numbers outside of Victoria. Things were opening up. We got the first vaccinations here in February. Things were looking okay. And of course, that's all changed a lot since then. So we had to call it quits at some point. I think the cutoff was about early June. And we said, this is enough. This is where the story's up to. But we acknowledge that. We sort of say, this is where it's at. We will probably update it should we go to an election. It's really hard to write something and make bold predictions before an election. The gloss is obviously wearing off the Morrison government a lot, as polling reflects. Having said that, I've followed him on election campaigns. I've investigated a lot about his, I guess, calculations during elections. He's very good. He understands campaigning. He understands political advertising. He understands polling. I cannot predict the outcome of the elections. So, look, I would love to write, and I said to my publisher halfway through this, give me a dead person. <laughs> I want to write their story because they're also not around to refute it. But that is the good thing. I must admit, I went to Scott Morrison, told him I was doing this project. It wasn't authorised. He did let me interview him. So I guess you do get to write that first draft of history. There'll be a lot of books and analysis written about his prime ministership, whether it end in the next few months or whether it go on for another 10 years, I'll try and update my book. But this is the first and I hope it gives people an insight into the guy running our country. Annika, I'm about to ask you an incredibly leading question. So I just want to acknowledge that this is a leading question and you are a journalist. I have had the privilege of interviewing David Marr. Now, David Marr has written many profiles, not autobiographies, but profiles of current and former prime ministers for the quarterly essay series. I did ask him if he would ever write one on Scott Morrison. And to quote David Marr, he said, is it really worth the effort? Now, that reflects David Marr. But I guess I'm asking, why did so few of us know that much about Scott Morrison and what can you tell us? Like, does he have a huge amount of substance that can fill up a political autobiography? 
Look, it's interesting. I think often we talk about substance and we talk about, I'll give Malcolm Turnbull as an example. He was the previous Prime Minister. He went to Oxford and he was involved in the Republic debate as I flagged and he has this interesting childhood with his mother and she absconded and she was related to the Lansbury family and it's this amazing sort of story that just tells itself and I think often we relate that to importance and substance and one thing I've realised through reporting on politics more than doing this book is I don't think Australians look at academia and other things that are perhaps meritorious in the same way. We actually like to vote for politicians that are a bit more like us. Bob Hawke, you know, he actually was a Rhodes Scholar but he hit it and the reason he was sort of liked was because people liked Hawkey, you know, as a bloke. People didn't like Malcolm because he was sort of seen to be from the top end of town. So, you know, I can see that people think that because Scott Morrison lived an average life and went to an average school, he didn't actually go to an average school. He went to a very good public school, but he likes to pretend he went to an average school. You know, he did an average university degree, married his sort of high school sweetheart, that therefore he doesn't have this sort of sexy story if you've become Prime Minister, I think there is a story to be told there, whoever you are, especially if you achieve it so early in your life, which he has relatively. So it might not be this big, bold, poetic sort of tale. It doesn't mean it lacks substance. You know, I think one of the most interesting things about him is his great, great aunt is Dame Mary Gilmore. Now she's on one of our notes, I think the $10 note. She was a mad lefty. She was a champion of the labour movement. We're talking late 1800s sort of era, she actually moved to South America to live in New Australia, which was a communist, you know, settlement. She's nothing like him, but she was still a big figure in his life. So I think that goes to shaping him and the person he is. I love David Maher and I appreciate his comment, but it's very dismissive. If you've become prime minister of this country, we deserve to know your story. And he's as interesting as anybody's. Thank you for answering that. It was a leading question. I was just very interested to see how you'd handle it. Annika. Happy, happy to dispute it. <laughs> Annika, there's a bunch of things that I think the average Australian would associate with Scott Morrison. They know he wears the sharky's cap. I think a lot of people associate his religious beliefs with him as well. And again, the daggy sort of cooking curries in the kitchen sort of thing that we've seen on his Instagram. How much of that is authentic and how much of that is confected? I asked a lot of people this from his colleagues to people that know him from school and uni. I'd say the answer sits, it's both right. He isn't highbrow. He likes Tina Arena. That is true. He's not putting that on. And I think, you know, there is an authenticity about that, that he could pretend to be into classical music or opera because he thinks this is something that prime ministers should be. He's not. I'm not saying he's stupid by any means, but he went and did a bachelor degree at university. He did okay in that. He did do an honours year, but he hasn't dedicated his life to sort of being the chatter class and pontificating on things. He is kind of what you see is what you get. I talk to friends and they go, we go to his house, he does cook a curry, and this is before he sort of hammed it up for the election. He does put on the Tina Arena. He does love some 80s hits. He does love his wife and kids, but who doesn't? Most people do, I would have thought. So, yes, all of that is authentic. He does love sport. There's been a bit of sort of, I did speak to the former member for his seat, Bruce Baird, who said he didn't see him at too many games before he became the local member and 
you know, Bruce Baird said he was the same. He said, I don't go to any rugby league games. Look, it does seem that perhaps he didn't like rugby league, Scott Morrison. He did like rugby union. But he embraced his electorate and that's all you can ask. I think he definitely hands it up, right? He's trying to create a character. It worked. It's a way of relating to people when they always say most people have about three minutes in their lives a day for politics. Pandemic's probably changed that, but... You know, you're dropping the kids at school, you've got your own job, you're thinking about the weekend, you've got a lot on your plate and you're not really thinking about politics. And if you're catching an image of a guy wearing a hat of the team you support or posing up for a selfie, making a curry, they are relatable things. They're political tricks. He's not the first one to use them. Yes, it, I think the, the smart thing him and his team have done is they haven't tried to rebrand him. You might remember infamously Julia Gillard coming out and saying, new prime ministership starts today or the new me or things like this. It doesn't work if you try and be someone you're not. Malcolm Turnbull talks about this when he was first leader of the party and what he learnt sort of going when he, when he came back the second time. And it is so hard when you're fronting the media every day to be someone you're not. And I noticed it recently with Bill Shorten, who feels almost liberated now he's not opposition leader anymore and he's more authentic, he's more charming on television and it's so hard to keep up an act that you cannot lie about those things. You can ham them up, you can push down parts of yourself that perhaps you don't want out there as much and I think he's probably been smart in picking the things that he thinks will relate. I don't know if they work all across Australia but it works in areas he needs and I think he's actually been really cunning about that and it's helped him. So that's the public Scott Morrison. In your research for the book and speaking to him in person, what did you learn about Scott Morrison as a worker? Like in the way he makes decisions and deals with his staff, you know, is he someone who wants all the paperwork before he has to make a decision? Is he someone who struggles to make a decision? What did you learn about the way he governs behind the scenes? He seems very sure of himself. Sometimes that's a good thing. You don't want an indecisive minister. It seems all the way through his career in politics, he has been given challenges and he knew that if he did a good job or did what the boss asked him, it would get him to the next job. He's very ambitious. I would say that even extended outside of parliament. He knows who his masters are. He won't stop people getting in his way. We saw this at Tourism Australia. He was at Tourism Body in New Zealand. And both of those sort of ended in some sort of disaster. But he didn't let down the person that hired him or the person that he believed he was trying to serve. So he sees a goal and he will work ruthlessly. When he was state president of New South Wales Liberal Party, everyone reports, even people that don't like him, first in, last to leave. I think that ambition is driven by personal ambition, though. I'm not saying it doesn't mean that you don't achieve outcomes along the way for the organisation, but it's always been about the next step for him. You know, by 30, he was earning $300,000 in a pretty plum gig with a government agency. Most people don't do that. You don't probably get there without hard work. What drives that? I guess that's different for everybody. But he is very determined. He's very data-driven. In politics, that's easy because you get a lot of data. You get a lot of polling. You know what people are thinking. And he's very adaptable to that in his other jobs. And that's why he's, you know, that Scotty from marketing thing works so well because he is very reactive to what people are thinking, what he thinks will work, what will sell a message. And that seems to be quite clear from day one. I wouldn't say he has a temper. 
a lot of prime ministers do, as many of their staff would report. I don't think Scott Morrison's necessarily feisty in that way. A lot of ministers you hear of throwing things at their staff didn't come across many stories of that, but he will block people out if he doesn't want their opinion or they're telling him something he doesn't want to hear. And one example of that was when the bushfires were raging and obviously he went to Hawaii and that was found to be a poor decision. He doesn't like to apologise even if he knows he's wrong. Now, a lot of people close to him will say that he knew that he was in trouble then. He didn't need to be told more than once and a few ministers rang him up and said, I'm hearing a lot about this at the electorate, you know, we need to fix this. And he did not take that kindly. Now, that doesn't mean he doesn't like advice. I think on policies, he's more interested in hearing different voices, but he doesn't like personal criticism. He definitely has a glass jaw and colleagues will say that he will be the first to push the, someone under the bus and not try and take the blame. So read of that what you will. There's good and bad in there. I guess there's good and bad in all of us. Definitely not a temper. Definitely a glass jaw is how I'd sum it up. About halfway through the accidental prime minister, you begin to talk about the women problem. And there is a a full chapter on that at the end of the work, Annika. But on page 269 of my copy, you note that some women that you spoke to expressed hesitancy of going on the record with their names because of potential retaliation. Now I'm paraphrasing, but that's essentially what the paragraph says. That horrified me. The idea that not only do we talk about a women problem in parliament and a women problem in the coalition and the liberal party, but that you're doing research on a biography on a sitting prime minister and that person potentially wields enough power to prevent people going on the record. I guess my first question is, did that happen a lot? And is that common in all political biographies if someone is still in office? But also, can you comment on that really horrifying paragraph? Yes and no. I think, you know, everybody makes their own choice if they want to go on the record. If I was being interviewed by any of my colleagues, I think it takes a really brave person to actually speak up. What Brittany Higgins has done and others actually shouldn't be underestimated. It is terrible that it's the Prime Minister and people feel they can't say that, but I would challenge a lot of women to think back throughout their careers and if they were somebody was writing about a boss or a male colleague they'd work with, that they'd actually have the guts because I don't think we have a culture of it. Yes, it is problematic that it's the Prime Minister, but I just don't think any workplace or conditions or the culture of this country allows for it. It always is going to, I guess, result in potential ramifications and whether they manifest or not, the threat of it, I can completely understand not wanting to do it. I think the women thing was interesting. It definitely developed as an issue throughout writing this book. As I say, I was meant to end it in January. Brittany Higgins, that came out in February, March. So that did shape it. And what I find really interesting about Scott Morrison as an example is he's never fallen into a lot of those toxic cultures in Canberra. He's not a womanizer. You know, you hear a lot of stuff in Canberra and no one ever, ever said anything about Scott Morrison, you know. He drinks, but you don't see him at the pub. He's never had sort of staffing problems like that. He's a bit of a clean skin. And when Malcolm Turnbull brought in the bonk ban, all the ministers were up in arms and he was one of the few people that supported it. He's rather religious. He married his high school sweetheart. It makes a lot of sense. So he should have been perfectly placed to handle this issue because he can. He's one of the few people that can stand up and actually moralise on this issue. We know Barnaby Joyce has tried moralising on this issue when talking about the sanctity of marriage and things like this in the same-sex marriage debate, and then it has all fallen apart. So 
it's interesting that he should have actually been in an advantageous position going into this. Obviously, that's not the case. And he has spoken with, worked with a lot of women across the years. And I must admit, it's not every woman. I did find a few that, you know, didn't have problems with him. But overwhelmingly, women had problems with him that men didn't. Now, it's not sexual in nature, nothing like that. They felt belittled. They felt he didn't listen. They felt that he just doesn't like working with women. And a few men even pointed this out, especially cabinet colleagues, that said that he clearly just didn't engage with other cabinet ministers who are female in the same way. He didn't take what they said with the same merit. And I think, I'm not giving him the benefit of the doubt, but those sort of issues are things that you can't, sometimes don't even realise yourself until someone points them out. And obviously he's had a lot of issues arise recently through his handling of Brittany Higgins, the silly things he says afterwards about, you know, needing to ask Jenny, you know, women should be happy that we're not basically being shot when we march on Parliament House, what he said to, you know, our recent Australian of the year. Now, none of these are hanging offences individually. I actually take them most of the time as misspeaking, but the fact that he does it so repeatedly and he doesn't see anything wrong with it is problematic. And, it strikes me that this has been something that's happened throughout his career. And yes, I did speak to a lot of cabinet colleagues, whether they said it themselves or other people commented, you know, I was told repeatedly he could not work with Julie Bishop. He could not work with Kelly Edouard. He pushed them under the bus for a lot of things. He didn't enjoy them. He obviously didn't put weight on the sort of contributions they made. That could have been through blind ambition. I think with Julie Bishop, it definitely was. They were both senior and competing, obviously, for different roles. With Kelly Edouard, probably less so, but it was just something that came up repeatedly. You know, I never heard that he constantly had problems with another colleague. Overwhelmingly, they were women. And it was just that niggling, you know, we all know what it is like as women, <laughs> just not being listened to, not being respected, having your ideas pushed down. And there does seem to be a pattern of that. Annika, Scott Morrison won a lot of praise through 2020 for his handling of the pandemic, which of course was done hand in hand with the state premiers and chief ministers, but there was a lot of praise thrown his way. It feels like the gloss of that is wearing off as the pandemic rolls on. It's early days to be asking this, but how do you think his handling of the pandemic will be viewed maybe 10 years down the track? I think about this so often. I think about it because the overwhelming political principle in pandemics and in crises is we get behind the leader. You don't want to be an opposition leader, no matter what side you come from. It's impossible. Nobody cares about the opposition. We're seeing it everywhere. Like it's just a factor that we've got to build into understanding how elections work during this time. It's driven by fear. We don't want to change. Even if we think the current lot aren't doing well, it's like the risk of swapping government in such a crucial time. Infamously, Kim Beasley going into the 2001 election when the Twin Towers obviously came tumbling down, saw this, knew it before the election, and it took away his chance. It's not something that's new. The interesting thing with Scott Morrison is that the pandemic may almost be at its end by the time we get there, fingers crossed, not for any other reason than we just want it all to end. Now, it could go two ways. He could be seen, knowing at the moment that the vaccine rollout is horrendous, if he times it well, and as Prime Minister, you actually do get to choose when the election is, and that's an advantage. 
that we're all getting out over summer. The Australian Open's going ahead. You get to see your grandma, who we haven't seen for ages. He actually could turn it, even though the rollout's been an absolute cluster, he could swing it and say, well, I got you this. I got you this for summer. A safe, wonderful summer. We're all outside drinking Negronis. Isn't it great? It's because of me. And I would not put it past him that he could do this because the federal government is the ones that is getting the Pfizer here. They are the ones that are in charge of the rollout, which has been a total balls up. But you look at Boris Johnson, right? The cases in England were horrendous and Labor isn't even a showing over there. So people do forget quickly. People want to block out trauma and these terrible times that roll in, and we all are, that nobody will want to remember this. So I actually think he does have an advantage going into an election year with that. And the problem for Anthony Albanese is relevancy. As I say, with opposition leaders just not getting that much sort of airtime. Having said that, there was a great quote I got during this book from one of a cabinet minister who said to me, public opinion is like wet cement. And when it moves around and it's wet, it doesn't matter. And I would say that's the last election. That's the 2019 election. People had made up their mind on Bill Shorten. Agree or not, people have never really liked him in the public. And that could go back to previous leadership spells and a whole other thing. That cement was dry and Scott Morrison had the advantage there because people didn't know him that well. He'd been in charge of immigration, but there wasn't this, as I say, he wasn't known to people and he used that to his advantage. The minister said to me, if the cement sets before the election and it will set against him, he has no chance of winning. So I hate predicting elections because I got the last one so damn wrong. So did so many journalists. I would say that around the world we're seeing incumbents re-elected overwhelmingly. Scott Morrison is also an absolute master of elections. I've been out there with him. His strategy is incredible. His messaging is really incredible. So I would still think, even with like everything that's gone on, he is in the box seat. And you talk about being down the track. How will we look back on it? Well, I think that election will define that. And if he's re-elected, he will be able to turn this into a win for him. And he will be looked at as a great leader. Now, early on last year, there were some good decisions he made. He did put politics down. He's not overly conservative or moderate. The Liberal Party are just divided into two lots. He's very adaptable. He delivered a lot of stimulus for a lot of people. I don't think we can take that away from him. JobKeeper was an amazing program. He should be praised for that, especially as a conservative prime minister when there's people in your party saying, don't hand out money to poor people. So if he can get through this year and win the election, I think he will be seen as handling this well. If not, it's going to be the thing that ruined him. And there's no getting away from that. Annika, the accidental Prime Minister is an awesome read. Thank you so much for your insights and your expertise on the man who runs this country and for sharing it with us today. Happy to chat. Thanks, guys. That's all we've got time for today on Anonymous Was a Woman. You can get a copy of The Accidental Prime Minister by Annika Smethurst on Booktopia or wherever you love to buy your books. If you want to make sure you never miss an episode of Anonymous Was a Woman, then you should follow us. You can do that on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to Anonymous Was a Woman. While you're there, why not leave us a rating, a review? It will help other bookish, nerdy type people find the podcast. Anonymous Was a Woman is made by 
Future Women and the wonderful people at Bad Producer Productions. This season is sponsored by Hachette Publishing and we thank them enormously for their support.